e-longevity, bringing space, crypto, and longevity science discussion to the masses. Welcome. We're happy that you're here. Welcome to the e-longevity podcast, everyone. This is our flagship effort to bring e-longevity to the masses in our first episode of 2023. I'm codenamed Lou, one of our early Discord admins and Dojalon lover. And I have a deep love for the Methuselah Foundation and their mission to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. And we're actually gonna be able to delve deep into that mission during this episode. I do feel like it will be accomplished and that there will be a return on that mission. We also want to introduce our wonderful co-host, Britannia. Hello, I'm Britannia. Um, I come with uh, 16 years of healthcare experience in rare disease on the commercial side. So I currently work for a biotech company. Um, I also bring with me my MBA, my master's in health administration. I'm passionate about healthcare and I'm passionate, passionate about longevity. Um, I've been a Dogalon holder since May of 2021. We always appreciate you being here with us. And today we have a very, very, very three for emphasis special guest today, founder of the Methuselah Foundation, a futurist, a euphorist, philanthropist. Welcome to the show, Dave Gobel. Thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, we're very happy to have you. So uh, our first question to you, Dave, for this podcast is the Methuselah Foundation. How did you come to develop the foundation that is Methuselah? Okay, so there's a couple of threads. Um, one of the threads was um, realizing after experiencing uh, vicariously the uh, medical system that must do what is right according to procedures and statistics, but that often leaves lives um, in a situation where they're not helped and they end up, people die because the system has to be followed. So that, that works in, uh, in a large or even the largest number of cases, but it, it excludes folks who might otherwise have been saved. You could think of it as uh, institutional triage and being slow moving where the parties who are inside the system know that they could do better and want to do better, but there is a very powerful inertia to let's call it bureaucracy and um, doing what has always worked even if there's new ways to do better. So people die from that um, tendency. I think of it as the um, dichotomy between doing what's right and doing what's good. To do good can get you arrested <laughs> in certain situations where you know what to do what's right, but there's lots more good laying on the table. So I started the foundation hopefully to um, provide the society and the medical community specifically clinical uh, venues with a whole bunch more tools to prevent the emergence of fatal uh, diseases and the 
the way to get to the most of those diseases is to um, delay or reverse aging. Cancer, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, these are all diseases of age. So if you can delay or even reverse aging, ipso facto, you have prevented the emergence of six of these massive killers of humanity. Now, why do that? So 23 years ago, when I first started thinking about Methuselah, um, I had just finished uh, with a partner developing a fully autonomous robotic stock trading system. I never had to touch a keyboard. It was doing all the trading all by itself. And then I thought to myself, well, this isn't adding any value. The only way for us to make money is to take it from other people. It's not positive sum, it's zero sum. Which was would have, would have been clever to know before I spent all that effort developing the robot, you know, the softbot. <laughs> right. Uh, but gradually, um, I decided that it would be best to find something more useful to do with my life. But in that process, I came to the conclusion that what I was doing was basically taking humans out of the loop, including myself. And if you just keep doing that more and more and more, what do you end up with? A world where humans are no longer useful nor necessary. And, uh, you know, just recently we're looking at automated AI that produces uh, astounding, profound art and code and, you know. And poetry and songs, all types of stuff, yeah. And so you ask yourself, I asked myself 23 years ago, well, will humanity really have anything to offer if you play this movie forward? And my answer was, and it's still tentative answer, the answer was, we have an insanely wonderful connectionist brain, mind. And that that, when connected to other minds, is insanely powerful. Forgive the mixed metaphors, please. <laughs> of course. So the only way that we can really uh, probe and fathom how far such kinds of connectionist uh, biological uh, mechanisms can go is by living longer. So what would someone who's 70 years old, who's had perhaps at least a hundred different major projects, jobs, and so forth, uh, who spends uh, at least eight hours a day learning new things, gaining new contexts, what would happen if you doubled that? And instead of the person losing their marbles when they're in their 80s, that you push that back for another 70 years, just hypothetically. And then you connected that such a mind to other minds, as well as increasing emotional intelligence, whatever that means, but I think we all kind of get it. Um, if you, if you uh, look at the difference between a three-year-old in a candy counter and a 40-year-old at a candy counter, the emotional intelligence is, 
of the two, the difference between the two is quite apparent, even though we don't know how to uh, numericize such things. So someone that is super emotionally intelligent and super intellectually capable, what would such a person be like? Well, I submit that that's the only way humans can remain relevant. I agree. I think it kind of goes in harmony with something you answered on Quora. Uh, what do you think will be obsolete in the next 20 years? And you said humans if we're not careful. <laughs> and so what I just described is the backstory to that answer. Mm. Um, the Luddites, you know, everybody who... Uh, doesn't want to necessarily learn the next step in technology, the insult against them is called a Luddite, you know, to, is to call them a Luddite. Well, history is a really, really valuable resource. If you look at the history, it comes from a fellow named Ned Ludd, and he was a silk uh, weaver. In uh, the 1700s, I think, when he was uh, uh, busy with his job and the other folks, it wasn't a feminine activity to make lace. It was a masculine activity that was very lucrative. And people did it in their houses. They worked from home and made lace collars and kerchiefs for royalty. And then you get the automated looms and it totally destroyed their livelihoods. Not just their livelihoods, but it pulled the men out of their houses, destroyed their sense of self-worth, and put them in factories. People forget that interchangeable parts on a factory line makes the humans servicing the factory lines interchangeable parts. So no wonder Ned and his friends were upset. Now fast forward to, to today and you have uh, graphics designers and one week they're in great demand and the next week the phone goes dead because Dali came into existence. Now the theory is there's always going to be something for us to do. Well, when the Titanic was sinking, Everybody went to the back of the ship, but the ship still sank. So, uh, you called me a futurist, but some things are fuzzy. Um, <laughs> so, I figured, you know, increasing the things that are unique among uh, humans when we're not causing ourselves to be roboticized by the dictates of game theory, tit for tat, uh, the tragedy of the commons, those kinds of things. If we can rise above our own um, animal nature and whatever you want to call it, let's just call it spiritual or our emotional nature, those are distinguishing characteristics So we're going to have to do that kind of thing to find out if we can remain relevant. And Dave, I mean, being in healthcare, we're already there with artificial intelligence. 
and robots, um, they're, they're doing the surgeries now, right? They're getting paid more than the actual surgeons are getting paid from a reimbursement standpoint for surgery. So we're already there, um, whether people realize it or not in healthcare. Yeah. You know, um, the surgeons, like, like I just said, the, the machines, they're doing the surgeries and they're getting paid more than the actual surgeons who went to school for a number of years to perfect their, their art. Um, so we're already here. Well, it's hard for me to disagree with you since that's what I've been saying. Yeah. But I, I totally understand it. And, and, and uh, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, the thing about the capitalist system is that it uh, pushes the highest cost element out of the picture. And the highest cost element with uh, recurring costs is labor, people. So, of course, you'd want to automate uh, those things, and, and we've been doing that now for, oh, I don't know, it's 250 years at least. Well, at, at some point, you're going to run out of stuff to automate. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the good thing about um, the capitalist system is that we now have anything and everything that um, Rockefeller could have bought plus, plus a, a myriad of other elements and features that no matter how much money he had, they just didn't exist. So uh, I'm not a Luddite. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to be, along with others, on the forefront of creating these new technologies designed to fill an unmet set of needs that uh, the regular economy uh, and regulatory structure, uh, at least to date, has not deliberately pursued. The problem with the current system is in the medical community, it is reactive and it is designed from a capital, I mean, uh, from a business standpoint, to be chronically dosing. Um, if you uh, came up with aspirin and you uh, had to uh, make one pill, how would you have to charge for that pill if someone only needed to use it one time in their life? It would be Millions. unaffordable. <laughs> Nobody could afford it. And no business would do it. It would be stupid to do it. And so you have to have two things. Chronic dosing uh, that leads to trackable earnings. So that is the uh, horror that we call fiduciary duty. You must um, be biased in favor of your stockholders' financial benefit. So that works in a lot of cases. It's a very, very good thing. But uh, the folks in this country and in other countries who decided that you needed something a little bit more because uh, such um, businesses don't fill all the holes that are that have a need. Well, you get nonprofits, and so as a nonprofit, we are able to pursue things that would, if we are, if we were in a profit 
uh, making company could, you know, get us sued if we didn't pursue the nth degree of money. So that's why we came up with the idea and the term return on mission as opposed to return on investment. Hmm. Which I appreciate. I, w I wanted to, I'm going to ask you about your mission statement, return on mission, return on the 90, the new 50 by 2030. But I do have a question about uh, something you just said, because I'm sure that Methuselah is involved in some really incredible things. So one, what excites you? What projects excite you for the future? But also, um, what are your thoughts on FDA and regulation to get that to the masses? Which do you want me to handle first? Uh, what excites you first? <laughs> okay. What excites me first is the numbers of folks who are on their own and for self-interest and the interest of their families are deciding, yeah, pursuing longevity deliberately is a good thing and I should help it and be involved. That's very, very encouraging. It's happening. Another thing that's very encouraging is the demonstrated science that allows for the reversing of aging of the epigenome without changing the genome or essentially making cells younger again. Um, I think that's profound. I'm still a fan of senolytics, getting rid of zombie cells selectively. And that's something that we have not yet uh, achieved as far as the clinic is concerned. There are several companies that are working toward that. Once you have a uh, targeting system at a cellular level, you can target not just senescent cells, but as long whatever you can identify as unique by characteristic, you can target. You can target it to kill it. You can target it to make sure it stays alive. You can target it to modify it, but you get a code-like ability, if then else. So I'm very excited about those kinds of things. So there's a couple of companies that are working on that. And then um, uh, mitochondrial replenishment. This comes uh, is congruent with our restock the shelves idea. And that is that over time, your mitochondria, that is the batteries, the energy producers in your cells, and there's uh, uh, bunches of them per cell when you're young, they are, uh, at an information level, they have high integrity, and also there's lots of them. So now, briefly, I'd like you to imagine a sushi restaurant with a conveyor belt. Okay. So the sushi, sushi is on the conveyor belt, and um, you know the chef, as they're producing new dishes, puts the dish on the conveyor belt, and then it goes out in a uh, loop and comes back. If the restaurant's successful, it comes back almost empty. And in real time, you can figure out what sushi is selling and what isn't and make more of it. However, if one of the chefs uh, gets old and slow and maybe gets a little bit of dementia, well then there's going to be fewer mitochondria. See what I did there? <laughs> fewer mitochondria. Now uh, using the sushi, 
belt, those uh, people or organs closest to the producer of the mitochondria gets first call. And interestingly enough, the critical real-time organs in your body get priority on mitochondria delivery. Your heart, your brain. Which means if you're producing less and you're producing less quality, then the people at the end of the conveyor belt can end up getting very few or no orders of sushi or mitochondria. Now I'll leave the sushi metaphor. <laughs> so, if you can uh, replicate offline or ex vivo high quality mitochondria, introduce them into the body for uh, distribution by the circulatory system, well, then that conveyor belt known as your circulatory system can deliver high quality, young information, high integrity information, mitochondria, and that would energize the cells and not just, you know, give the person more energy, but energize things like the immune system, for instance, but really everything. So I'm very excited about that, epigenetic reprogramming and uh, uh, senolytics, and then some one-offs. Um, the uh, program that we have going with Lucadia Therapeutics, for instance, where it's uh, this, the, the idea that the problem with the cause of Alzheimer's is that the plumbing is backed up, that uh, the drain, draining of metabolites um, and junk from the front of the brain gets backed up and can't drain fast enough. And by backing up, it introduces uh, an immune response, and the immune response introduces a infla inflammatory response and other responses that basically begins eating the brain from the inside out. And if you have a toilet that's clogged, does it make any sense to clean it? You not, can try, but not no. Clogged. <laughs> so, um, anyway, it's falsifiable and very clear. Uh, we've done uh, research uh, on cadaver database for correlation and uh, ferret experiments that show that when you occlude or cover half their cribriform plate, well, they get Alzheimer's-like symptoms. So next we have to take it to humans. So I'm very excited about that and so on. So when, when, are, we, when are the masses going to be able to, to get this? Um, the future is a wonderful thing. It's not written. There are no facts in the future. But what you can do is attempt to bend the current reality in directions. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, the, current, this, the, the current situation, the status quo, is that all uh, medical interventions must go through an FDA process that includes animal testing. As long as that's the case, 
Well, let's say that you have a drug that you already know works in humans, and you come to the FDA, and the FDA says, ah, that sounds wonderful. Show me your animal data. What do you mean? Well, we, we're required by law to have animal data before we can let it be tested and therefore approved for human use. Yeah, but we've been using it in humans, and it works. Yeah, we understand, but this is the law. Hey, we're, we're a nation of laws. What do you want me to do? So for a number of years, there have been people working behind the scenes. One of our portfolio companies, Organovo, for instance, and perhaps primarily, I don't really know, um, has been working to get what's known as the FDA Modernization Act uh, adopted. And that happened, I think, like 10 days ago. Really? Yes. 10 days ago, um, uh, President Biden signed the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, which lots of people hate, lots of people love. I don't really care because what was in it was a <laughs> wonderful present for humanity. And that was a bipartisanly approved FDA Modernization Act, which specifically uh, changes the law so that it is no longer a requirement that you must use animal testing. It now allows for the option of 3D human tissue printed models, algorithmic models, combinations thereof, an attempt and an approval to allow for these new technologies not only to be uh, accepted, but once accepted by the FDA, then, I mean, you cannot help but think that there's going to be a tremendous outpouring of investment because the dam is broken. And by the way, I don't blame the FDA. They were probably just as frustrated at the law as anybody. They didn't ask for that law. It was uh, based on the experience with uh, Hitler and friends uh, and arose from the Nuremberg Code. And uh, that was a really good thing. But in, a, in the last 10 to 15 years, the low-hanging fruit that was possible with using animals as models has significantly dried up. To the point that mice are being made into Frankensteinian monsters to try to better model humans. So you've got, uh, I guess, mice that uh, mimic Alzheimer's uh, kinds of uh, symptoms. And so you test your drugs on mice that seem to have Alzheimer's symptoms, and maybe it'll work. And then you discover that what you have cured was a disease that only Frankensteinian mice get that really en ends up having nothing to do with what humans get. Why? Because we really don't know what Alzheimer's is yet, or at least we can't say with certainty. We can't say with certainty because we don't know what to do about it. Now we have theories. We, Methuselah Foundation invested in a company that we have high confidence in, but until we cure the first human, it's still not fair to say we, we know. 
that's a pretty high standard to say you know something. And you know, that's an example of why we have a, um, a vision or a mission statement that's falsifiable. We want to make 90 the new 50. Okay, that's terrific. When? By 2030. So all of the folks in uh, the foundation and as affiliated with the foundation, stakeholders of the foundation, we're going to have egg on our face if it isn't done by 2030. But okay, let's say we succeed. Oh, that'd be awesome. And people will say, okay, why should we stop there? Alternatively, what if we make 90 the new 65? That's so sad. <laughs> but I'll like take it. Better. <laughs> it's better than 90, that's for sure. It's better than 90. <laughs> so, but we have a falsifiable um, mission. Compare that, and I'm not criticizing anybody. But compare that with all of the other medical charities. Do they have anything that's falsifiable? We're going to cure cancer. Okay. When? When? When are you going to do that? One can understand why they wouldn't say when. But that's, you know, people have an expiration date today. And so that's why we have an expiration date on our mission to drive us every day to think about is what we're going to do today contributing to the achievement of this mission? Will the 100,000 people who will die later today of aging and its complications approve of the efforts that we made today I think about that every day. Dave, I want to back up a little bit. You mentioned the return, the return on mission. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that to us? What does that mean? A return on mission is a riff on ROI, return on investment. So uh, everybody kind of knows what a dollar is. And uh, pretty much everybody knows that if in a year you get $2, when a year earlier you had $1, you've got a return on your investment. Uh, all, all math and finance aside, you got 100% gain. <laughs> yes. Return on mission says, did you save any lives? Those are good numbers. Did you reduce suffering harder to get a number on that but people know that there are pain scores so let me give you a concrete example uh in around about 2009 the foundation invested in a call a company called silverstone therapeutics as part of our new parts for people strategy. So Organova was the first one that we invested in, which was 3D human tissue printing, the first commercial 3D human tissue printer. After that, we invested in Silverstone Solutions. But what did they do? They created a um, software suite that would 
allow for a newly emerging uh, surgical procedure to happen, and that is paired kidney donation. Paired kidney donation uh, takes account of the following thing. I need a kidney, and my wife is willing to give me a kidney. Yay. They do the testing and they say, uh-oh, your wife's kidney is not a match for you. Isn't that a shame? So that happened all the time. But what if you could collect together all the needers and all those that had uh, willing donors but didn't match, what if you could um, see what would happen if this donor went to that needer and that needer's donor that didn't match goes to another one and so on and so on and so on and created a formula that you could quench so that everybody got a kidney by using the liquidity and variety of the various donors' kidneys. This software did the genetic matching among donors and needers, such that you could have arbitrary numbers of operations limited by how many operating rooms do you have? And you could do five and six kidney transplants at once. I think, uh, I'm, I may be wrong about this, but it's now into the dozens that can be done simultaneously. I'm trying to, oh yes, okay. So the answer to return on mission. I would imagine there's been at least 10,000 people whose lives have been saved because of software that cost the, the foundation $125,000 to support. Chicken feed. Not only that, but the company was acquired by a hospital services company and it's doing fine as far as I know. And the foundation got more than its money back. Not only did we get return on mission, but we got a return on our investment. But first for me is return on mission. So I mentioned before that Organovo was the world's first 3D tissue printer and it creates 3D tissue models for the research community. It also went public and so we got a return on our investment that we recycled into return on mission efforts such that at least four companies came into existence because of that first investment. So it, you could think of it as a recycling system, an ascending spiral. And then you get dividends you didn't expect, like the FDA Modernization Act from work behind the scenes by Organovo and A4LI is another organization and Institute for Oh, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting somebody. I hope they don't get mad. But they were, <laughs> they were crazy. Maybe no, I'll it's it, 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 maybe so. We can you can send it send me a message afterwards. You might add it at the end. Um, but they will be listening. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, speaking of return on mission um, and um, ROI, where do you see 
crypto and the block and blockchain playing in this space? Um, I think that uh, crypto and the blockchain allow for vastly larger potential audiences and therefore uh, individuals who can, in their own enlightened self-interest as well as community interest, become involved. I mean, when was the last time I could talk to somebody from Vietnam or Bangladesh or Brazil using uh, translation capabilities of the that are embedded in the internet to have an opportunity to let them know that such things might be possible as reversing aging and that in a way the uh, crypto community the money aspect of it is like a campfire or a lightning rod it attracts people they're interested they want to get out of the gravity well of perhaps their poverty poverty um, and, a, and a crypto token such as Dogelon being, um, uh, let's say, not expensive, relatively speaking, uh, becomes attractive. Uh, I think that the average um, holding uh, for a holder uh, is about half the average for other meme and similar tokens, which I love. I love it. Um, let's see, what else? The, the ability to have a global computer that nobody in particular owns and therefore controls is vastly valuable. But I would argue that crypto hasn't figured out what to do with itself yet. And so, you know, we have some ideas on, uh, on that. And we've, we announced a couple of them at uh, our Dublin conference. Um, and yeah, so, so we'll see, but I, I think that, uh, until there is, uh, value that is recognized as value and that needs the blockchain in order for it to, to be workable, then crypto is kind of interesting. But once you get products that can't be done any other way, well, then now you're really talking. And, and we hope to introduce an example of that this year. That sounds exciting. Hopefully more longevity institutes and foundations that kind of double down on using crypto and using that, that whole you know, world so that it can actually have some use cases and can really have a foothold in the, in the healthcare field. And mm -hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to ask just a brief question. This is from the community. One of our researchers wanted to ask about your thoughts on areas maybe of underfunded research. Um, hmm. It's all underfunded. Just about every research there is is either over, underfunded or overfunded. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> That's the way the world works. <laughs> mm. If it's underfunded, you're constantly fighting headwinds. If it's overfunded, you're getting dumb, fat, and happy, but not accomplishing much. Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, we have a... Anyway, yes. Ask the, <laughs> ask the question again. I, I, I went what are your... <laughs> yeah, I understand. That happens to me at times too. So, what 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 do you think are some underfunded projects that maybe should maybe deserve more funding? Ah, okay. 
One of our strategies is lust for life or renewing the joy of life. Um, so that would be things that would restore nerve endings and uh, vascularity. Uh, not to get into areas where some people might feel uh, moral issues, but the idea that you could you can take a uh, a safe medication that will allow you to um, enjoy marital relations. Well, you know, that's restoring the joy of life. It's real. And Absolutely. Let's say that you're in your uh, 90s and you can't taste your food anymore. Every time you wake up, everything hurts like fire. And <clears throat> you, you can't quite get out of bed, but when you roll over, you realize you didn't realize it, but you pooped yourself. It's horrible. So... You know, lust for life is an area that I'm very interested in um, for, for more funding. But it's more of a soft science for most people. And in fact, a lot of aspects of it are soft. I'm interested in a technology of, uh, of, this, of the uh, psychiatric sciences called EMDR, uh, which is a very simple um, activity that allows you to stop having PTSD, not living in the past as though it's actually happening now and ruining your life, and instead uh, contextualize that as though it's a memory. Rapid eye movement during sleep seems to be uh, related to taking difficult memories and or pleasant memories and putting them in a nice drawer for later access. So EMDR allows you to take those PTSD-like PTSD experiences which you hide away and don't want to experience, but they're still there and they're affecting you, bring them into the open, contextualize them, and now you can remember them and maybe even laugh at them. Or say, okay, I've forgiven myself and I forgive them. It doesn't... I'm not feeling it. I'm not scared. I'm not livid when I remember these things. So... That's an area that I think that not enough people know about. It's ridiculously simple and cheap. Anyone can do it to themselves, for themselves, uh, in the same way that anybody can sleep at night and dream and have rapid eye movement. Um, and I've benefit, benefited from it, my, uh, from it myself. Go to EMDR on Wikipedia and read about it. Or you can get your therapist to help you out with it. And meditation. Um, every meditation, don't you? Can't you, with neuroplasticity, rewire the brain, the brain? And those, is there some data out there on that? Or, well, I think that meditation is terrific, but it means too many things. I'm I'm very careful of of words, words like love, words like evolution, words like luck. They can mean so many things. They end up meaning nothing in particular, and they 
they contribute to confusion and not communication. So for me, meditation is thinking deeply in a bathtub at 98.6 degrees with the lights out and uh, thinking about actual things, not emptying my mind. Uh, and, but other people, you know, meditation is different for them. So there's religious meditation, there's, you know, cognitive meditation. So I don't know. I just know what works for me. Um, so EMDR has a numerical track record of success. And it's worked for me. That's all I know. We're all ends of one. So if meditation, as however, whatever meaning it has to you, works for you, you got to do it. I really respect that answer. And I do, I remember we spoke offline many times about the bathtub method. And I got to <laughs> tell you, it does, it does work. <laughs> it really has helped and changed my life. Um, and it really is encouraging as well to see that Methuselah does care about mental health, especially because we're in a global mental health crisis. But Lust for Life has to do with your interest, Methuselah's interest on making sure that individuals can also internally, not just you know, with their physical health, but with their mental health, can also thrive as well too. So another thing about uh, Lust for Life is that it um, denies the thesis of retirement. Uh, humans must feel relevant and that they have a an ability to con uh, contribute. Uh, there's a wonderful Twilight Zone episode where a man, uh, a, a, a punk criminal, dies and um, he wakes up in the afterlife um, for the sake of the literary, li literary license and he ends up uh, going into a casino which he loves to gamble and he ends up win winning everything and he thinks he's in heaven it's wonderful all the young ladies gather around him and he's the uh, the prince and it's just inc it's everything he's ever hoped for and then there is a fade dissolve and you return to him and he's sitting at the table glum he can't lose. He's tired of it. There's no challenge. And he goes to the master of the casino, who is the devil, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, his angel. He thought it was his angel. I gave it away. Um, and the man says, I don't want to live in heaven anymore. Maybe I should try the other place. And his guide says to him, what makes you think you're in heaven? <laughs> So retirement, retirement is a lot like that. If you go and you ask people who've retired and maybe they're in nice home, uh, you know, care homes, assisted living, or a carefree 55 plus community, and you ask them, of all the regrets that you have, what's your greatest regret? About 80% of them will say, I stopped working. So don't, don't do that. I think of the retirement funds as the best slow death money can buy. 
Once you stop investing, you're dying. And I don't mean financial investing necessarily, although that's fine too. I have no idea what question I was answering now. <laughs> so I, I do have one more question for you, Dave. What are you currently reading? What book are you currently reading? And then second, what are some resources and books for someone who's new to longevity? What, what would you recommend for them to read? Oh, give me a second. He's a, he's a deep thinker. What's on your nightstand? <laughs> there are six books. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what I'd like to say is that yesterday I learned that the video of the Wright brothers' first flight, which has been presented to me and all students that, as far as I know, as being contemporaneous with the first flight, was not true. That they didn't have a camera at the first flight in 1903. That the videos that we see seem to have come from 1908 or 1909. So I guess what you could say is, you know, it's not about books. It's about gathering rosebuds where you may, as Shakespeare said. And that is, the first thing is to have a sense of what's missing in your uh, mental model of reality. And then to put up a dream catcher so that when that interesting butterfly happens to fly by, you catch it instead of it just continuing on in its trajectory. So uh, I would say that The Body Keeps the Score was the most productive book that I've read recently. That's where I learned about EMDR. So, so if you haven't got anything else to do, if you don't have any books, but you think sometimes your life is miserable because your brain <laughs> does things to you, or the world seems to be doing things to you all the time, but everyone else blames you, well, it could be you. Uh, so reading that book might be a, a good thing. And... Uh, Wisdom of Crowds. It's a fascinating book. And it's one of the... What, uh, so we have a couple of derivatives of that concept, Wisdom of Crowds, uh, that we're probably going to be pursuing during the year to uh, make some software based on it. Um, I guess about... Fifteen years ago, I and a group of folks at the Department of Homeland Security built a system called Idea Factory. Uh, listeners might want to just look up Idea Factory. You'll find that it was given the President's Award at that time. Um, and it was designed to um, harness expert wisdom of crowds to get the low-hanging fruit that everybody on the front lines doing meeting with with uh, the public knew, but that senior management did not know, 
so that the pyramid could be collapsed by using this system. If you think of a hierarchical pyramidal structure, uh, most of the steps or layers between the bottom, the base, and Pharaoh at the top, they are empowered to say no. It's only at the top that they can say yes. And so this particular project, Idea Factory, was designed to warp that system. And it worked beautifully. There was lots of low-hanging fruit that was picked. So we want to bring some of that uh, special sauce to the um, e-longevity community. Thank you so much for those <laughs> that response, Dave. Uh, the, so you said the body keeps the score. What was the second book you mentioned? I didn't. I talked about uh, sticking, wisdom of crowds. Sketcher. Huh? Was it the wisdom of crowds? Oh yeah, I did say too. <laughs> yes, it's an old book, but it's, it's brilliant. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, thank you. We, we from the e-longevity community, myself, Britannia, we just want to thank you so much for your insight, your illustrations. We cannot wait to see what Methuselah does this year. We're looking forward to hearing about you know e-longevity projects, e-longevity protection, and so forth. But also, thank you for your work in the longevity field, and now um, and also explaining what return on mission really means. So um, we thank you very much. And anything you want to say, just last last words for us? Sure. I would like to say thank you for the stakeholder and donor community for the trust that you've shown in us. Uh, some of the stuff that we have done has been kind of like a hard left turn and maybe a little hard to, to understand at first. But uh, hopefully you can see that these unconventional moves uh, produce uh, wonderful fruit. Um, and um, if you if you want to know something important about what's going on, take a look at. Uh, I guess it'll be um, in a, a month or so. We'll have a website, afpm.bio. Animal free precision medicine. Uh, dot bio. And that will that's an initiative, a major initiative this year, to uh, take advantage continuing advantage of the FDA Modernization Act to uh, support and accelerate the transition from legal language to policies in the real world, as well as a prize, which we have already announced, but a prize uh, to uh, encourage the acceleration of the actual science and engineering of these models so that by 2025 um, the, the aspiration is that every drug that would be um, tested in research that would succeed with these human models would actually work in humans. Right now with animals the number is between 5 and 10 percent which is horrible not to mention the suffering the animals go through. So if we're going to make 90 the new 50 by 2030, we absolutely have to intercept and chop the time that it takes to get a drug to market from 12 to 15 years down to five years or less. That's how we're going to make our 2030 
deadline. And without it, we won't. So AFPM.bio is crucial, not just for Methuselah Foundation, for medicine writ large. Because all medicines, not just longevity medicines, all medical devices will benefit from this. And thus, humans will benefit. And some of my best friends are humans, by the way. <laughs> Mine too. Well, well, Dave, thank you once again for being with us. Thank you, Dave. We appreciate you. Appreciate you, actually. All right. Such, a, such a, a great way to start off our year. This has been the E-Longevity Podcast. Have a good night.